When you think about luxury shoe designers, who comes to mind? We're fairly sure you're not thinking about Natasha Standard from Nori Shoes, but you should be. This military veteran not only makes amazing shoes that are stylish, but walkable, key, as you all know, but she also travels to Italy regularly to design and manufacture her shoes. She met the challenge of COVID by pivoting her shoe design to make military-grade combat boots for women because, hello, shockingly, those have not been made to fit women's bodies to date. And Natasha's an expert on that. Our conversation with her was so insightful, and we can't wait to get some of her shoes ourselves. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Now, Misasha, do you want to start? Because you are way more fashion forward than I am, and you need to introduce our guest right now. I am super excited because any day on the podcast that we get to talk about fashion is like a big day for me. So... I am super excited that we have Natasha here today. And first of all, I was looking at your website and I'm like, I need those shoes and I need those shoes. And once this pandemic is over, I need those shoes. So I can't wait for our discussion today. But first, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Natasha Nori Standard. I'm CEO and founder of Nori Shoe Company, and I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Yes. So what I love about you besides the shoes too, is your background, because I think your background is so interesting, especially when you look at backgrounds of fashion designers and and shoe designers, yours is very unique. And I love it. So, you know, from growing up loving shoes in Indiana to 20 years of service in our military, and thank you for that service to owning your own luxury shoe business. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you ended up from Indiana? to where you are now? Sure. So, you know, I'm from a traditional Midwestern background. I was close to both my paternal and maternal grandmothers. I spent a lot of time with my grandmothers, probably especially my mother's mother, because I was her only granddaughter. So, you know, we spent so much time together. She's 85 years old this year. We're still close. We still talk. So basically, I've always loved fashion. I've always been into fashion. You know, my parents were very strict Midwestern parents. And my parents were like, so what's your plan? What do you want to do with your life? And I told them what my plan was. And then they're like, oh, you don't really want to do that. Like I told them I wanted to go to Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. My dad said, I'm not going to let my only daughter go to New York to do anything. So come up with a new plan. No problem. So after we had these meetings. We had two of them. I said, okay, that's fine. I'm going to go. And I went off and joined the military. I did not tell my parents. So this is what happened. So back in the day, me and my brother had our own telephone line. So my parents never answered our telephone. So the phone is ringing. My mom walks past the phone. She answers the phone. It's the army recruiter. I walk in the house. My mom smacks me in the face. It was very dramatic. You know, she's very upset with me. Wait till your father comes home. My dad comes home and says, this is something that she wants to do. We're going to let her do it. And so, but my parents maybe agreed to get my, I had need to get my undergraduate degree. And my dad always told me, stay true to yourself. And then my mom told me, don't lose your femininity. Those were the three things that I left home with. And so that's what I did. I left home. I joined the military. I went and got my undergraduate degree from Hampton University. I have a graduate degree from University of Kansas, International Relations and Studies. 
Then I left the military. I went to Savannah College of Art and Design because I knew I wanted to do something totally different than being in the military. And even though I was very good at being in the military, I don't know how I got that. I don't know what happened, but I was very good at being in the military. But when I left, I knew it was, I wanted to do something totally different. Went to Savannah College of Art and Design, got a master's degree in uh, fashion and luxury management with a minor in shoe design. So I wasn't really comfortable with that journey as of yet. So I took a job at Williams-Sonoma because of my background is supply chain management. I was a global supply chain manager for Williams-Sonoma for about seven months. And then I said, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do with my life. And then I got into the shoe design idea concept and industry. So I went to Italy for one year to learn how to make shoes from the best, the Italian artisans. And then after that, I learned all of the mistakes that you can make, the ideas of making a shoe, how to make them, how they could be more comfortable on your feet and all that. I decided I could contribute to the market. And so I have an Italian company that I work with to help me find a factory that can manufacture my ideas. I draw all of my shoes. I sketch all of my shoes. I'll go to Italy with around 50 sketches. And then we'll figure out what sketch can actually be made, what sketch can the woman wear, which sketch is most comfortable, and that's what goes to the market. And that's the deal. That's really cool. I love the comfort angle because I got jacked up feet. And I'm like, I hit the point where I'm like, I think I can only wear flats. But it looks like there are amazing brands out there like yours that actually make it possible to walk Mm -hmm. and still look really cute. That's awesome. Yeah. I like to call my shoes wearable and walkable. Because when I design my shoes, like I have probably, right now I have one stiletto heel. The other heels are block heels and my heels will never be more than 3.75 inches high because you don't need to be higher than that to be feminine and to be sexy, but you also want to be casual and comfortable. So I did a test. I tested a four inch heel. I tested a 3.95 inch heel, 3.85 inch heel, and a 3.75 inch heel. And you don't need a four-inch heel to be appealing. You don't need a four-inch heel. But the comfort level from a four-inch to a 3.75-inch is astronomical. It's very, very relevant. I have a girlfriend. She's a VP of a pharmaceutical sales company. And she didn't believe me. And she wore my shoes. And she's like, Tasha. And she wears all of the brands. Louboutin, Fendi, Gucci, Jimmy Choo, everything. And she's like, your shoes are more comfortable than anything I've ever worn. Okay, so I'm totally sold because as an attorney, I've literally put on heels and had to sprint from like the courtroom to our war room. And I'm an ex dancer. So I also have completely messed up feet. Thank you years of point work. So that is amazing because I think you don't realize what stress you're putting on your feet, especially when you're in those stiletto or like the block heels, though, even like that's also amazing because to be fashionable, yet to actually be standing on something is kind of like a big deal. So I'm excited. No, I had a question because both of you said fashionable and feminine and Misasha knows me. These are words that I have learned more about as I've gotten older as opposed to when I was younger. But how do you define those things? Okay, so for me, I think feminine is kind of Because I've always been like a really girly girl. I grew up, I have a brother, one brother. I have other brothers because my dad has other children now. But I grew up with one brother. I have one first cousin that's a guy. Most of my first cousins are men. So I grew up 
knowing that they're men and I'm a woman. And so anything that was like opposite of what they were doing was what I was doing. So for me, and this is not for all femininity for everyone, but for me, I like something that is maybe a lighter color, but solid. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be flopsy or flimsy, but I want it to be solid. I want it to be durable, but I want it to be functional for me. And you know, that's what I look at. When I make my shoes, I want my shoes to be beautiful. I want them to be something that people look down at. And I'm always surprised when I decide to wear my shoes and people are like, oh, those are nice shoes. And it's so funny when you tell someone that your shoe designer, they don't know what the hell is going on. They're like, oh, okay. They let you put your name in the shoe. It's my company. They don't know what's going on. on. But as far as being feminine, I think it's a different definition for each individual person. I love that. Also, because I next want to ask you about how your military background sort of transitioned into civilian life, because I'm sure being feminine, being in the military, well, A, and those two things we don't necessarily think of as being synonymous, right, in certain ways, but also, so I'd love to hear about that and how you took those three tenants, you know, that you left home with and translated into 20 years of service, and then what those lessons that you learned in the military taught you as you translated those, I guess, to civilian life and to running your own business. Yeah. So, you know, I truly believe that the foundation of a person is really, you know, what they believe in when they were growing up. Because, you know, I was really blessed to have a really great foundation being, you know, close to my grandparents and then also being close with your parents. And then I have a my dad's side of the family has 10 brothers and sisters. So I'm from a really large family on my father's side. How you really, if you raise your children to believe in themselves, they will always believe in themselves because we never, like my family, (laughs) we, like my grandmother on my mother's side, my grandfather died when we were, my dad was like 20 and my grandmother had these 10 children to deal with, but my grandmother was solid. Like you ask, my grandmother asked you to do something, she's going to ask you one and a half time. That's it. It's over. (laughs) It's over. But we always was very respectful. In our households, we never used the N-word. We never did anything like that. But we always were like, you work hard, you believe in yourself, and you will be whatever you want to be. And we all thought that, and we still think that. We have some really solid individuals in my family. And I think that's very, very, very important because like I left the military. I remember this guy said to me when I was in the military, he said, state, my last name is Standard. Standard, you run like a girl. And I said, I am. What? What's happening? Oh, he's like, oh yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so you really, truly have to really believe in yourself and believe in that concept. And another thing that I also took from living at home and, you know, being with the, from a solid family is people can't come up to you with BS. You know, don't come up to me with, you know, whatever. Look, if it's not, if it doesn't make sense logically for me, I was never game for it. I was like, it's ridiculous. So I think a strong, solid belief in yourself, that's, it's so important because it, like, you know, the saying, if you, what is it? You fall for something. If you fall for that, you believe in anything. If you fall for bullshit, it will come to you. I'm not like that at all. So I think that's very important. Lessons from the military. One of my most important lessons from the military is attention to detail. (laughs) Attention to detail. Like if I meet someone, I can sum them up in seconds. 
And then people are like, well, what do you mean? Uh-uh. You sum someone up in seconds. And the reason that people in the military are like that is because like, I was in Korea for one year. If you're in, in somewhere for one year, you have such a small amount of time to make a difference and to figure out what's going on within the organization. So like the first 30 days, you get an assessment of what's going on within the organization. And then you have a really 10 months to make a change within the organization. So when I meet someone, I sum them up in 30 seconds, really three seconds. And usually eight times out of 10, I am right. Attention to detail is very important. I can give you some examples if you guys want to know. Sure. I bet I was going to say also Korean food. That's also important. Oh oh my God. Okay. So you want me to tell you the story about the Korean food? Yes. Okay. So I lived in Korea. I lived in Tontegu, Korea, which is down south. It's uh, two hours from Pusan. And we used to go to the Korean spot four or five times a week. It was only 40 uh, won at the time. It was delicious. We would eat kalbi. We would drink soju. We would sit on the heated floors. It was one of my best assignments ever. And then you'll know. So in my family, you know, we're black. So, you know, my family would eat fried chicken with hot sauce. When I was younger, I never did that. Thank my butt to Korea. I'm eating all the peppers, all the spicy sauce, all the rice, all the noodles, all the lettuce, all the mints. I'm eating everything. And that's one of my favorite foods in the world, Korean food. It was fantastic. Totally. Can you tell that story you mentioned before also about, like, I love when you talked about how people who don't travel or haven't had the opportunity to travel to some countries where they're so homogenous, don't understand difference or, and how it's different than it is in the U.S. Absolutely. So while I was in Korea, you know, okay, of course I'm brown. I was dating this guy who was um, black and Chinese. So he had their complexion, the identity you were talking about. So he had their complexion. So we're walking around Korea talking or whatever. And so Koreans would see me and they would be startled, right? They would be like, what is this? What's going on here? But that's because Korean is a homogeneous society. Everyone has the same skin tone. Everyone has the same hair. Everyone has kind of the same height. I saw a lot of tall Koreans, but it's just because they've never seen anyone that looked different in their whole life. They could be 10, they could be 20, they could be 30, they could be 40, but they've only seen other Koreans. So when they see someone that looks different, it's not an insult. It's just that they've never seen it with their own eyes. And, you know, Koreans are famous for these really cool spas that are open 24 hours a day and they have the sauna, the steam room, the jacuzzi, and everyone is naked. You know, you have women's side and men's side. So I'm in the spa and Ajima, which is the name of a Korean woman, walks up to me and touches my skin. I said, you cannot touch my skin. You cannot touch my skin. But it's not an insult. It's just something that she's never seen or she very rarely sees. And she just wanted to know what it felt like. And also, you know, with me working with my Italians, one of my Italians, his name is Richard. He's 50 years old. And he said the first time he was like 19, 18, 19 years old. He's lived in Italy all his life. He saw this Asian woman and he was like so excited to see her. And then, you know, he accidentally like touches her to see, you know, what her skin felt like. And he's like, oh, it feels the same. So it's not a, um, it's not a negative. If you, if you've never, you know, I've lived in a lot of countries. I've lived in the Middle East. I've lived in Africa, lived in Asia. I even lived in Japan for like six or seven months, Zuma. We were in Camp Zoom in Japan. I mean, if you lived in other places, you really understand that America is a a phenomenon because we are a multiracial society and most societies are not like that. They are homogeneous societies. 
I love that. I think that's such an important distinction to make, especially for people who have not had that opportunity to go and visit other countries. And you also just described my husband's experience in Japan, because every time we go back to Japan, it gets very confusing for everyone because they're like, who's this guy? Why is she speaking Japanese? And then they're like, and these kids? Like, we don't even know what to do with the kids because these are, they kind of speak Japanese. They don't, we don't know. So, but it's not, it's born out of a place where in our, you know, sometimes in the smaller areas where some of my families live, they have never seen people who look like my husband or my kids or even me. So, yeah, it's different. Yeah. And they might not have even heard someone that are fluent in English. Because let me tell you what happened to me. I was in Germany, walking down the street in Stuttgart, Germany. I saw this Asian woman speaking German. And I looked at her. And then, you know, I got myself together because I said, I should be looking at an American Asian speaking English the same way. Well, I quickly got myself together. Quickly. (laughs) But we all have those moments, right? Where you're just like, wait, wait, I realize I had an assumption. But you know what I find interesting about your story about being overseas? You know, I bet there, I know there are pockets in America where there are like all homogenous, mostly like all white people. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yet the way you described being seen or experienced in Asia in some of these homogenous cultures is like fascination or curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think that the knee jerk reaction, if I'm not mistaken in this country is not wow, what is that black person's experience? Oh, I want to touch their skin. It's like judgment is the knee-jerk reaction in this country. And I feel like there's a, something is not the same, even if you're going to Little Pockets. I don't know. I just realized that when I was hearing you talk. Well, okay, so that's very interesting. And I never thought about that. And the reason it's like that is because of our history of slavery and the oppression of black people. So, you know, up until like the 1940s, like, you know, World War II, World War I, I mean, really, you know, black people were marginalized and seen as, you know, legally less than human, right? So if you live in these pockets and you understand that the federal government has deemed that these people are, are less than human, it takes a couple generations to get past that. It really does. Because I even went to basic training with a young lady named Kelly Hoon, who was from Michigan. The top of the, you know, Michigan is a mitt. So the top of the mitt, she had never seen Black people until she came to Georgia, where we were stationed. And that was the first time Kelly Hoon had ever seen Black people. And so I think it's, you know, I think, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but I think it's harder for people. The thing is, if your federal government has said that these people are not equal, it's very difficult for people to get past that they are. Just like, for example, right now in 2020, the federal government is saying masks aren't that important. So it's very hard for people to understand that they need to wear a mask to protect other people, not themselves. And I, you know, the only reason I can really conceptualize and understand that is because, you know, the military is all about leadership. And I did not believe leadership was shit. I'm sorry for cussing. I was like, this is a bullshit concept until it happened to me, until I had the worst leader ever. So he was the worst leader ever. Subsequently, his staff was the worst leader ever. I mean, they were awful. The personality of the leader, personality of the staff, they were the same. And we got a new leader in. He was from USC. He went, he went to USC, laid back and effective. 
And so leadership is very important. There's a lot of people that need to be led. And if they're not led, they're left to their own devices. And those are not always, you know, very, very, you know, you know, a lot of times it just don't make any sense, but I can see how people could believe that. And I can see how people can think that. Yeah. Here's a plug for make sure you're registered to vote and vote in November. Okay, people? <laughs> like, <laughs> You better vote because I'm, look, I don't care what's going on. I'm putting on, I have an N95, all the clothes that I wear, I'm going to throw it away when I'm going to vote. Absolutely. You know, I have a question then, because you make luxury, like gorgeous, expensive, nice quality shoes. And so if I'm just coming to your website as a consumer and I see those shoes, I might just look through it and pick the shoes I like. How much as a small business owner do you think the perception of your shoes changes when they know your story, when they know who you are behind the shoes? You know, I might not be the the right person to answer this question because the way I shop is very different than the way other people shop because I shop for me. I shop for my body. I shop for my skin tone. I shop for my shape. I don't shop for other people. And I don't really care what other people think of what's going on with me. <laughs> so let me put, get myself outside the circle. So, okay. So why should I believe that these are quality shoes? So what I'm working on is all my customer reviews. And also I have two appointments at the end of the month. One is at Saks and one is at Neiman's. And for me, if my shoes are sold in larger retailers, the customer is more like, okay, this is a bona fide luxury brand. It's sold in Neiman's, it's sold in Saks. So I can understand the trepidation, but uh, we have a return policy. You get your money back. If you don't like the shoes, send us the shoes back. But I would say, give me a chance, try the shoes, try them on, walk around in the shoes. If you don't like them, we have a full refund policy, send them back. So on the shoes, I want to talk about the names of the shoes. I think those are amazing. And I watched the press clip where you're talking about where you got the names from. And so I I want to hear the backstory. And I'm going to issue a little disclaimer. I have not seen Game of Thrones. So I have like... What? You still haven't? Okay, so I might be the only American. How are we still friends? (laughs) And I saw like half of the first episode. Okay, so... Hold on, hold on. I just have a question. So you see the half of the first episode and you're not like down? Like you're like, oh, I can just let this pass. But who died and I'm like, I'm out. Okay. Like I don't understand. Like there's some like weird mist over here and like I just, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I have, I was raised by powerful women. I believe all women have organic power that we tap into before men have to tap into theirs because you know when you have a child you're like this is my responsibility men kind of choose it but women have to do it that's what i believe so my brand is really about women empowerment so all of my shoes will always be named after powerful women in some industry or another based on you know what, what the angle of the collection my first collection were na- all of my shoes are named after physical warriors. So like Joan of Arc, Wu, she's from Japan. I have uh, Minty, which is Harriet Tubman's uh, nickname. I have Amina, who is a black African princess, warrior princess. I have Juana, who is an American Indian princess. So I believe women empowerment is all inclusive. You know, we all kind of women have the same kind of struggle as far as men accepting our power because we are very powerful beings so that's my concept with that like my first collection is named after 
physical warriors. I wanted them to be fighters. I didn't want them to just be like, oh, no soft power there. All hard power warriors. And those shoes are all named after hard power warriors. So my second collection is named after the women from Game of Thrones. But how it happened was at the end of Game of Thrones, Arya is like the, the, the superstar winner of a Game of Thrones. She killed, you know, I don't want to get into it, but so, but my grandmother's name is Arya. So I was like, okay, if I do Arya for my grandmother on my mother's side, I have to do Lila J is my grandmother on my father's side. So all of the shoes are named after women from Game of Thrones. And, and actually, this is the Aria booty. Love it. And so this is a very popular boot. And the thing about this boot was I wasn't even going to produce it because I was like, it's a bow on the side. You know how the pants going to come down. But you know, women are wearing stockings and leggings or sh short skirts. And this is a very popular boot. So this is my Aria. And so I have, you know, Daenerys has a name. Ariane has a name. Needle, the Aria's sword has a name. I've named every, all of the collection after the powerful women from Game of Thrones, which, and I haven't gotten clearance from Game of Thrones. I think my manager is working on it, get in touch with the executive producer. So if they come back and say, you can't do it, I'll, you know, change the names. But it's something that is very important to me. So women are recognized and it's not just, you know, singers and dancers and people that are on television. I mean, there's powerful women all over industries, all over, you know, different job types. It's, we are very powerful beings. And I, and I really believe that. That's cool. I love that. That's so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. You know, you said before that you dress for you. Oh, yeah. So do you make your shoes for you too? Or is there like a target audience you have in mind that you're aiming for? I don't know the answer to that question because this is what happened. So the first time I designed my shoe, I went to the factory and I saw the, so when you sketch it and then you see it, I said, that's a hot shoe. I mean, it was all like partially done. I was like, D and they were like, Natasha, that's a sticker. And I was like, oh man. I mean, so I don't know if I designed it for me, but I do know that I want it to be something that is attention getting and I want it to be worth the money that people are spending on my product. And I want it to be interesting and intriguing. And I definitely do that because like, I'm the kind of person that like, I'll put my shoes. I like one time I wore my shirt on like a Adidas dry fit shirt and Adidas leggings. And I wore my shoes. And my girlfriend was like, I never thought about doing that. That's not like I said, I dress for me 1000%. I don't dress for, I don't dress for, I'm not like that. But yeah, so no, I don't think it's for me, but I think I have something to contribute to the market. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a, a shoe designer's name is Brian Atwood. And I busted him out because he had a picture of him. You know, he has this very masculine, beautiful, sexy body in heels. And I said, try to walk a couple blocks in those heels. You're just posing here. <laughs> walk a couple blocks in those heels. So I designed for, for a very, very distinct clientele that wants a comfortable shoes that are also beautiful. I think that's amazing. Like I said, I'm 100% in on that. Like, I know we've talked about sort of what's happening right now in the world. And, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm sure that presents, you know, challenges to your business and your business model and what you were doing and your, the timing of doing it. So I'm curious to hear about some of the challenges and maybe some of the pivoting that you've done as a result of what's happening right now. And then maybe some greater challenges that exist beyond, you know, just our current events. 
Yes. So Nori Shoes, we were meeting all our KPIs. KPIs are key performance indicators up through February, though, up through March. Then after March, when we had the quarantine and everyone shut down and everyone started to work from home, no one's really going out to restaurants or going to work. So why would you buy expensive shoes? So with that, it took me, you know, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. It took me probably around two or three weeks to figure out, you know, what my way ahead was. So this is my pivot. So I've always wanted to create a military grade combat boots in women's sizes because you'd be very surprised that military boots are made for men in a men's size six, and then it's graded up and down. That means that all the time I was jumping from planes, repelling from helicopters, doing all kind of crazy wild physical stuff, my ankles never touched my boots. So that means I never got any support from my boots to support my ankles or my feet. So that's what I've done. I created a military grade combat boot. So that means it meets all the military regulations, but it's made for a woman's foot size. And I was selected for a pitch competition out of Hofstra University. It's a $100,000 pitch competition. I progressed from the semifinals to the finals. We are doing our final pitch competition or our final pitch on August 6th. And so it went from 30 companies to 10 companies. And then I found out when I found out like a week later that I was the only woman to advance. But I think I advanced as the only woman because I talked about the actual autonomy of a foot. Our women's foot, are, we are not the same. Our feet are not the same as men's feet. It just doesn't even logically make any sense. And, you know, because what they did was they told us, hey, guys, um, you 30 companies, and we've decided you guys are so great that you guys have to vote on each other at the very last minute. You're like, what? <laughs> at the very, you guys, we have to vote on each other. You're like, what? So they made us, the 30 people, vote on each other to see who's going to advance to the, um, to the finals. But I advanced to the finals, and I'm really looking forward to it. So to me, that's a very important pivot, especially because, you know, if you're being required to do these crazy I thought it was fun because I love jumping from airplanes. So these physical things, we could at least have, you know, boots that structurally are made for you to be successful. And I think that's very important because, you know, men will say, well, you know, women, you know, they can't do this. They can't do that. First of all, our bodies are not the same. And then you have to trust your equipment to be most successful. So if your equipment is not supporting you, you're not going to trust it and you're not going to be as successful as you could be. And that's my pivot. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it's a brilliant pivot because I remember reading, even at the beginning of COVID, so much of the protective equipment for doctors or nurses is made for male bodies. Like so much of it is not tailored to women. And if you're talking about feminism and like empowering women, like of course we want stuff that'll keep our bodies safe and protected and supported. So absolutely, that's brilliant. Is that going to be just for sale for the military or for the average person as well? No. So what we're doing is we have a business to business go to market strategy. We also have a direct to customer go to market strategy. So, you know, the business to business strategy is moving along pretty well. Uh, the direct to customer, we have to do some work on it. So the boots will be available for correctional officers, security officers, women engineers that have to go into the, like a, not a factory, but a, like if they're a mechanical engineer and they're maintaining equipment within the distribution center, they have to have protective footwear to get there. So I have a, a relationship with the National Association of Female Engineers. 
and they're going to put a link to sell my product on their website. So we're working on all of the industries that require boots as part of your job. We've already reached out to them and we've heard very positive results. That's awesome. Good luck with that. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it too. I'm really, yeah, it's very important. Well, and I love that focus on women and acknowledging, you know, the difference between men and women and the fact that so much of what we do and and the gear that we have and the protection that we have is all geared towards male bodies and, you know, the standard male body at that, which women are definitely far outside of a lot of the time. So, you know, I guess this brings me to also asking about dough because, you know, we love dough as you know, voting with your wallet and choosing women-owned brands that are producing products for women, and who better to understand women by than women, producing products more broadly than that, too. So I'd love to hear about a little bit about, you know, why you joined Doe and what that sort of synergy was between you and Doe. Okay, I'll talk about Doe. Um, I just want to say that you would be surprised. I asked so many men, did you know that military women, the boots are, are made and men's size? They said no they don't care you know they're wearing their boots they fit they support them but anyway so dough so first of all i love the name dough dough is very important i think that you know women i think it's easy to not know how much dough you're making not understand your bills not understand your credit not understand (laughs) i think it's easy but see i've always been obsessed with stuff like that like i told my um grandfather if I wasn't going to join the military, I would have been a stockbroker because I'm like obsessed with the stock market and everything financial. I want to know. But I think having control of your money and making it relevant and making it important, I think that gives you a new way of taking care of yourself. Because I've always been like that. Like when I was in Iraq as a commander, my off time, I was buying visa stocks. I've always been like, you know, you have to take very good care of your money because, and then this is another thing. I think I saw an older woman and she was like homeless or something. I was like, I don't ever want to be like that. That was my thing. I need to have my money. My money needs to be together. So supporting women and purchasing, you know, using your dollars as power is very important. And that was another reason why I love Vanessa and the dough concepts. I mean, and also is women supporting other women. Because we have these conference calls where, you know, you have a jewelry designer, you have a woman, she's making tea, but we're all small business owners and we all probably need the same type of support, graphic designers, you know, legal support, attorneys, accountants and stuff like that. So it's more than just the physical product. It also is the back end of supporting women. And I think that's very important because a lot of women, I will always say that a woman will be vilified before a man that did it will be vilified. Like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was paying for things that her husband did. Shit, what does that have to do with her presidential candidate that her husband was a cheater? Like, another example, Will Smith and, and Jada. What? Why are we even talking about her entanglement? I mean, a woman will, it's easier for other women to vilify a woman than they will vilify another man. So that's why I support women always. Like, I have a list of, products that I'm buying tomorrow. And they're all women-owned products, women and veteran-owned products. I love that. I have a question because it's popped up to me, like as we were talking, you said before that people don't understand what you do as a shoe designer. Yeah. Like, can you just go into like 
I mean, I'm literally picturing like, how do you have a brain that goes, I'm going to pick up a pen and paper and like sketch out a shoe. Can you just, I don't want to take too much time, but like, I'm fascinated. How does that work? So, okay. So this is interesting. No one is there that they think is going to steal the ideas. So I go to shoe school. We're making, uh, we're drawing shoes and we're making patterns. And then you can't record your lessons. You have to write down all of your notes and then you have to draw. So when I went to shoe school, I didn't know how to draw. Cause I was like, what do I need to know how to draw? So it was like, okay, I learned how to draw. I learned how to make patterns. I made, I learned how to do that. So, and back to your question. So I went to SCAD as well. So there is a process to designing. So the first step of the process is trends. So trend analysis happens twice a year, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And that is the reason when you see designers and the products for the spring all kind of look the same. The espadrilles kind of look the same. The flats kind of look the same. Everyone kind of has the same color. It's because everyone is gaining inspiration by the trends that they purchase from trend companies. The trend companies, it costs $25,000. And so that's why all of the designers and the designs kind of look the same because the trend analysis, they choose the colors for the spring. They choose if we're using PVC or not, the insole, the outsole, you know, if we put appliques on the shoes, that is the trend. So as a smaller designer, I need to kind of stay in line with the trend. So when Saks says, okay, we have a small budget for an emerging designer is still in line with the trend. So someone says, I'm not gonna pay with 3,000 for Chanel or 1,000 for Louis. I'm gonna get this four or $500 Nori shoe. It's all stay in the trends. So that's how you, so I start off with the trend and then I extract from the trends what the Nori brand DNA is. Then I sketch. And then I just sit down and I just, you know, I I pull it out of myself. And it's really an interesting experience because I didn't really realize how effective and great I was at it. I'm I'm not really trying to like, you know, but I'm really good at it. And I didn't really realize how good I was at it. But my whole story kind of came together because if I hadn't gone to SCAD, I wouldn't really understand the importance of the trends. Because a lot of times we have people that design and they're like, oh my God, I can't get picked up by a major retailer. And it's really because of that trend analysis, because you need to be in line with the trends, because if people aren't going to spend a lot of money on a major designer, you need to be at least in the color pattern of the trends so that the companies will pick you up and present it to customers. That's eye-opening, because then it's that really merger between the artistry of the product you're creating and the business side of it. Artistry and commerce. It's very important, yes, because what happens is, so the buyers will see my product and they'll say, hey, Natasha, I really like the Ariane. Okay, we like it. However, Trend says that it's just supposed to be white or Trend said it should be nude or Trend said it should be gold. And then you as the designer has to say, go back to your factory and say, hey, I want to try to create the Ariane in whatever the buyer is asking for. So it is artistry and commerce because, you know, it's very important for your product to be available in the larger retailers. And this is another statistic that a lot of people don't realize that only 30% of people will buy a shoe uh, without trying it on. The other 70% needs to try a shoe on. So as far as like footwear, you really need to have a place where people can go, feel, see, and touch and try your shoes on and then maybe go to the website or purchase it or purchase it. It's very important. And then another thing, you guys were talking about shoe issues. So I don't have a lot of feet issues. I didn't realize how many people or women had feet issues 
until I start selling shoes. Like plantar fasciitis is a big deal. Like uh, corns and bunions are big deals. And, you know, there's shoes that, you know, because I have like Napa leather shoes that will stretch and mold and protect your feet. If you have a, a plastic shoe, it's not going to feel good with, you know, a bunion or a corn or plantar fasciitis. It's not going to, I mean, people have really jacked up feet like me. <laughs> yeah, the feet. yeah. I mean, people, and so I have women that will take their shoes off and show me, do you have anything for this? And then, you know, their bunion is pointing out like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if the woman can get in the shoe. It's very serious. And that's why I'm also creating a, I have a, a shoe, it's called Sarah, my mother's name. But it's uh, four inches of memory foam in the shoe, built in the shoe. It's the most comfortable flat shoe I've ever, you know, put on my feet. But yeah, we're coming out with that next year. <laughs> when you laugh. Your name all over it. It literally has my name all over it. I will keep my eye out for that when it comes up. And say, yeah, yeah it's, it's a good shoe. That's awesome. Well, where can we find you on social media and your website and that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, I'm on, my website is norishoes.com. My IG handle is Nori, N-O-R-I-E, shoes, very easy. My Facebook is Nori Shoes, where I'm on Twitter, Nori Shoes. All of my handles are all Nori Shoes. Come check us out, drop us a line. I should have given, DM me if you see something on the website that you like and you want a discount, DM me and let me know. And I'll give your viewers a discount. Awesome, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just DM me. And you know, the discount, I'll just say, the discount will be 30%. So just DM me, let me know that you watch the show and then I'll give you the code. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Misasha's like, okay, when can I start? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just let me know. I'll have, I'll have a problem with that. <laughs> you know, before we go also, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you wanted to share with our listeners? No, I think there's a dope interaction, a dope exchange. I know I got a little political but, you know, I'm kind of from a political family. But, yeah, I think it's very important for people to understand that most countries are not like our country. And most countries don't look like our country. So, you know, for people to get offended when they go to other countries and because everyone doesn't look the same, you're offended because, you, you know, I think that's kind of unreasonable. 100%. Thank you. That's awesome. We were all meant to connect today. That's really all that is, right? I had a great time. And thanks for having me. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 